You are listening to CISD on SOAS Radio. Hello, good afternoon and welcome. For those of you that aren't aware, I'm Dan Flesch, Director of the Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy, and also standing in on behalf of uh, our Centre for Gender Studies. Our exciting theme today is um, Women in the UN Origins, a Southern Critique. And uh, we're delighted to have not uh, Professor Rosa Friedman, but standing in for her, sadly she had to go for swift and hopefully effective surgery. Uh, we have Rosa Park, uh, or Rose, one Rose, one Rose, one Rose, excuse me, Rose. <laughs> um, we immediately just met. Um, also from the University of Reading? Uh, no, from the Advocates for Human Rights uh, NGO in the United States. Oh, well, thank you. No, I know. Um, <laughs> Uh, also, our uh, very own uh, Fatima Sator, who will be joining us in the top right-hand corner um, in, uh, in presentation shortly. Um, Dr. Uh, Rebecca Adami, on my immediate uh, left, from uh, the University of Stockholm. Um, our very own uh, Elise Dietrichson, she and uh, Fatima uh, are new graduates of CISD in July. Um, and uh, finally, but by no means least, uh, Professor Eva Donahue from, uh, from Durham. Um, this uh, uh, whole topic, uh, from our perspective and Sir's perspective, arose out of uh, uh, class discussions in the, uh, our UN class, um, where uh, we've been looking at some of the research that I and others have been leading on um, the UN before the Charter. Can I come down? Um, and I think uh, two or three master's students cohorts ago, uh, we started this discussion, and uh, it emerged uh, fairly swiftly that rather than if you ask people how did gender equality get into the UN Charter, uh, and people would generally, even if they were professors of gender studies, go, uh, it must have been Eleanor Roosevelt, um, it was a fairly universal response. Uh, that in fact it was uh, the agency of some women, and this project uh, was particularly taken up uh, in the uh, uh, previous year's uh, cohort, um, uh, and particularly by uh, Fatima and Elise, and they'll talk more about the project and how it's uh, taken off. And you may have seen that uh, their work was singled out in the UN Day email sent around by the director of UN Women in New York. Um, uh, for, uh, for praise, which is, uh, I think, an accolade to uh, CISD and particularly to all students. So, um, I'll briefly introduce the, the panellists before we start. Um, um, at least we'll begin um, looking at uh, non-Western delegates at the San Francisco conference that you're at the Charter um, and talk a bit about the uh, CISD project. Uh, Rebecca um, will be uh, looking a few years further, looking at the women who pushed uh, for women's rights in the negotiations in 1948 of the Universal Declaration, uh, to be a declaration on human rights rather than the rights of man, um, and the need um, today to focus on similar historical uh, stories. Um, uh, Rose um, will talk hopefully a little about the Agenda Network and also about her, her own engagement. Uh, Fabian, who I say will be joining us, will particularly talk about the, um, the project's role in global advocacy. Um, and um, uh, Aoife will um, talk about the location of the uh, legal mandate for gender equality in the Secretariat within the, the UN Charter. Um, I have to say we had very exciting discussions beforehand, talking about how we can develop and carry this research uh, on and being academics, we talk about uh, the necessity to write in obscure publications that nobody ever reads but our bosses care about, um, if we're ever to get any more money, um, <laughs> uh, and therefore uh, possible uh, research grants. But these actually uh, were, were very good and fruitful discussions. Uh, but I hope very much that uh, some of you, whether you're from CISD or from gender studies, welcome. 
but if I, if I can say, I think that SOAS talks a lot um, about uh, decolonization, decolonization of the curriculum, um, approaching the curriculum from a gender perspective. We had an excellent working group in this last year looking at uh, those issues and helping draw up guidelines for the centre to move gender issues on. Uh, we talk about uh, decolonization and uh, gender issues in external social structures. And I think what I would say epitomizes the uh, role that I have as director and the, the centre has is to enable students, not even doctoral students, but lowly, dare I say, master students, to really uh, take on this uh, centre's slogan of thinking globally and acting globally and take on an issue and really uh, run with it. So there may be other issues you want to take up, but if you want to join this project, I'm sure that Fatima and Elise and their uh, other academic colleagues will be keen to draw you up the ladder rather than having climbed the ladder, push it away, as all too often is the case uh, in professional life. So um, without more ado, Elise. So I called my, my dissertation, and I still kind of like it, but gender equality actually was a Latin American contribution to what you could refer to as the Constitution of the World, the UN Charter that was created in 1945, which is the founding document of the UN and, and the, what the UN built on uh, the following decades. So uh, why did I think it was important to talk about gender equality in, in the Charter and how that came about? the referencing to women's rights in particular and these kind of things, is that I think first and foremost it's important in history to give credit where cre credit where credit is due, actually. And But on a more personal note, I was very intrigued because I have been very interested in the UN, I've been interning with UN women and following their mandate and work, but I never really heard of these non-Western delegates and how crucial they were actually for, for getting gender equality into the UN Charter. And so I also believe that this story is important because it also matters today on how we talk about gender equality today. It's a very important political tool to, to actually locate the discussions on gender equality to non-Western countries as they, today as we talk on, on uh, gender equality and the discussions on that in the UN. So I focus on the minutes from the conference in 1945 when the UN Charter was established. And, uh, and from me reading those minutes, I found that the Latin American women delegates, they made significant contributions uh, to women's rights and equality in the Charter. And that my claim then is that this fact actually challenged the global narrative on gender equality today, which is quite a bold statement, but having Dan as a supervisor, it, it was okay. <laughs> and so I've been focusing on the Brazilian delegate. Uh, her name is Berta Lutz, and, and she was one of the four women only to sign, uh, sign the Charter. And she was really the leader of the feminists at the conference. And she stated that women at the conference were forerunners of, on women's contributions to world affairs. And indeed, they were. The most progressive women delegates represented Latin American countries, and their vocalist, vocal claims were instrumental in establishing an international agreement to declare women's rights a, fun, a part of fundamental human rights. So I'll go through the different parts where, where you can find the traces of the battles that these Latin American women had in 1945. First, uh, from the minutes, you can read a speech from, uh, from the New Zealand's prime minister, and he stated that these women on the conference deserve not only the congratulations, but the thanks of conference and Democrats everywhere. It is owing to their efforts, and particularly the efforts of women delegates uh, from Latin America, that this clause will find its way into the UN Charter. And he was talking about Article 8, that ensured the principle that women can obtain the same position as men in the UN system, and it's today used as the main tool when, when we talk about how to get more women into senior posts in the UN today. So it's a very fundamental article. And also in a passionate plea by Bartolitz herself, the Brazilian delegate, she says that Article 8, is a Latin American contribution to the Constitution of the world. It was written by the delegations of Uruguay, Brazil, the Dominican Republic, and of Mexico, and presented by Senator Isabel Isadel Bell de Vidal of Uruguay, and placed among the amendments by their governments of the countries these women and I represent. So it's very clear uh, which countries should be acknowledged for, 
for really fighting for this article uh, at that time. And what's more interesting is looking at the main opponents uh, in this discussion was American and British delegates. Uh, as they stated, there were no need for the article because women were not to be excluded from this organization anyway. And I think today we know that, yes, we need this article. And, and there are some interesting quotes from a, an Australian advisor, Jesse Street, who, had a, who said that there was nothing specific in law uh, which excluded women from voting. And yet, in practically every country in the, in the world, women had to carry a long agitation before they were given the right to vote. So also, I've been focusing on the preamble, so the introduction to the charter. And he also here was a difference in opinion on the wording of women's rights. And uh, the mentioning of women was, was discussed. Uh, and it's understood to have quite crucial importance as then the UN, from its conception, legitimized demands for gender equality between men and women. However, had it been up to the uh, Virginia Dildersleeve, the, the American women delegates, she would actually, in her draft, she took out the word women. So it said the equal rights of, now it says the equal rights of men and women. And she wanted to take out women in her draft of the preamble. And, and her decision was more based on that she wanted a better English. Or it, I, it was very much not a part of her consideration that it was important to, to specifically re reference women. But uh, luckily, Berta Lutz, the, the Brazilian delegate, she stated that we also know that it has always been held that women have been included in the general term men throughout the centuries. And we also know that it has always resulted in the fact that women were precluded from taking part in public affairs. So they were very aware of, of the importance of the language in the charter. And a third part of the charter which is interesting to look at is the addition of sex to the non-discrimination list. So you probably heard the phrase that mentions the promotion of human rights without distinction of for race, sex, language or religion. And the inclusion of sex here is an original letter that I found at the LSE Women's Library uh, where it says that the president of the Alliance of Women in 1945, she stated that Bertha Lutz made a passionate plea for sex to be added, using her main justification for the magnificent war work being done by the women of the UK and the British, as the British were typically not in favour of the addition of sex, which it deemed unnecessary. And yeah, uh, Bertelitz was proud to announce that inclusion of sex was amended by Brazil, Uruguay, Mexico and the Dominican Republic at the request of women on the delegations of these republics. So in lobbying for this amendment, Lutz was actually given the nickname Lutzwaffe, referring to the German Luftwaffe during World War II by the British and American delegates, who were bored and irritated by the repeated and lengthy feminist speech. And Gildersleeve, who was the female American from the American delegation, she said that how women in, in the United States were well-established and equal opportunity for women had often been demonstrated. This was in 1945. <laughs> and um, in fact, the opposition to women's commission uh, from the other Western women delegates made Bertalut state that the mantle is falling off the shoulders of the Anglo-Saxons and we, the Latin American women, shall have to do the next if battle for women. So there was a very, the, uh, the awareness was there that there was this divide between the Western and, and the Latin American delegates in particular on this issue. And another example, uh, which, is, which is quite funny to read, which we found in another memoir that was found by a previous CIC student. Uh, it's the Lutz memoirs where she talks about Gildersleeve confronting uh, Lutz, saying that she hoped Lutz was quoting, going to, uh, not going to ask for anything for women in the charter, since that would be a very vulgar thing to do. <laughs> and this was during the conference in San Francisco. And Lutz replied to this remark, saying that the need to defend rights of women was the main reason why the Brazilian government had to put me in the delegation. And the British advisor, Florence Hosborough, thought feminism rather unladylike. And up, upon their arrival to the conference, the British advisor stated that they did not want to be seen as women delegates as they refused to be confined to the women's field. So the charter was not a place for this spectacular feminism, according to the British women advisors and Gildersleeve, as they argued that it might not only be, uh, be necessary in, in backward countries, where women have no vote and few of rights of any kind. And uh, Lutz notes, after describing how the American and British delegates were in opposition to Lutz, that it is strange 
psychological paradox that often those who are emancipated by the efforts of others are loath to acknowledge the source of their freedom. So there's a wrong presentation in the UN today by UN-owned account on how, what, what actually happened in San Francisco and how the UN Charter came about. And, uh, and you can find this uh, in the Blue Book series by the UN and the United Nations Intellectual History Project. So what, what the presentation today uh, the, of history is that all women at the conference, uh, which would include the British and the, the American representatives, are given credit for women's rights in the Charter. It's usually referenced that four women's rights in the Charter and they are uh, honoured for, for getting women's rights into the Charter. And also this representation of women in drafting of the Charter as one coherent group, which speaking with one voice contrib contributes really to, to women's subordination as their agency is not really taken seriously. They remain defined by their gender and not really their actions. And so this presentation also implies that the non-Western contributions to international relations are not looked for, looked for by researchers and consequently not noted in history books. And this is what we want to do in, in the research we would continue on. So uh, to my last point, this, this part of history matters because um, it exposes to the fact that history and how it's presented is very political and that we are not necessarily presented the true account of what really happened. And one author that inspired me a lot was Amitav Achara, and he said that if good ideas are found outside the West, they are typically often dismissed as imitation. And this might be why the contributions of the Global South in the founding of the UN has generally been ignored and neglected. It's not by accident. And how we present history has important and very political implications for ownership such as when the UN is seen by some as a product of Western liberal order, this established a narrative that challenged multilateral cooperation today. So the lack of ownership to the agenda of gender equality, due to it being called a product of Western thought, is an argument used by opponents of feminism to re reject its relevance. Uh, so to conclude, you have Article 8, the addition of sex, uh, the first proposal for a special commission on the status of women, all these can be attituted, attributed to the non-Western delegations. And these findings, they reveal that the foundation that the UN uh, today are based can be traced back to the pioneering visions that the Latin American women had for the UN Charter. And articles that today make up the foundation of the norm on gender equality. So thank you. So I'm going to uh, continue where Elise uh, left you. I just want to say also that I, in one of my earlier articles, I lifted up this, uh, the, the, the problem of kind of like representing other women, especially, you know, if you're white and you're writing about uh, women from, uh, from other parts of the world and trying to, you know, lift other people's voices. So I used uh, Spivak's argument there on, you know, the limitations of representation, but it's also really important to talk about women and female representation because it did have an impact in the origin of the UN. If there weren't any female representatives there, we might have ended up with a totally different international document. Uh, because one of the first drafts, I just wanted to tell you this, one of the first drafts was from uh, the American International uh, Bar Association, and they wanted the declaration to be International Declaration on the Rights and Duties of Man. And that was questioned later on. So um, just to introduce myself, my name is Rebecca Damis. I'm not from, from SOAS, I'm from Stockholm University. I'm a senior lecturer in, in education, and I did my postdoc at Columbia University. So I did archival research at the UN. And the reason why I went there was because I was really uh, frustrated by the discourse in research on human rights. Why was, I, why was I frustrated? Because I'm really passionate about human rights. And uh, the majority of research in the field is critical of human rights as a Western concept, right? And me, myself, I see myself as more as a post-structural, postmodern uh, scholar. So 
didn't think, as a post-structuralist, I didn't think that we could just look at the Declaration today and see the truth about human rights. We have to go back in history and see the different meanings and interpretations. So I went back to the, to the actual drafting. And what I found that the archives that puzzled me were all of these names of women from other countries that I hadn't seen anywhere in the research. So uh, the kind of like the conclusion with my research is I find myself critiquing the postmodern critique <laughs> of the dominant discourse on human rights as male and white and Western. Because first I agreed, I was like, yes, it must be Western, you know. Of course, I mean, this was in, in 1946 to 48 that they wrote the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I mean, most of the African countries, they were still under uh, the colonial rule. And there weren't so many. Uh, India had just become uh, independent. Pakistan had uh, become independent from, from the UK. And they sent female delegates in their delegation. I didn't know that when I read Butler. I didn't know that when I read, you know, Judith Butler and Spivak, uh, Ben Habib, these very prominent researchers in the field. But they're critiquing and they're also strengthening and reifying this dominant narrative of human rights as originating in the American Declaration of Independence, in the French Declaration. Both of these are very exclusionary. It's about the rights of man and the property-owning man, excluding both women and, and people of color. Okay, so I went back and I looked at some of the historical work that's been done when you looked at the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And these are the people that are usually mentioned as the drafters of the Universal Declaration, and this is because they were part of the drafting committee. But the drafting committee, they did not actually make like a draft, they suggested some proposals that was later discussed in different UN bodies in the Human Rights Commission. And there you had always representatives from the Commission on the Statutes of Women, and also in the third committee of the General Assembly. So these were other uh, UN bodies where you had female delegates debating. But Eleanor Roosevelt, she was chair in the drafting committee. So she's the only woman who has been uh, associated with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I criticized her role in my research because uh, she asked Gildersleeve, the American uh, female delegate, was against mentioning women explicitly <coughs> in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights because they felt that men was, you know, including women too. And I just want to say something about that because I found myself in Sweden. I just want to give you an example today because human rights is not something that we can take for granted, right? So in the Swedish constitution, we have a mentioning of human rights in Sweden. But you can change that with two elections. So in just two elections, we could have no protection for human rights and democracy in our constitution. I find that a problem. And some people and lawyers with me find that a problem. So we've been uh, working and lobbying a little bit with politicians about that because we have racist parties also in Sweden and they would like to take mentioning of human rights away. But when we talked about this with high-profile lawyers, you had white women and privileged white men in the room, and they did not see a real problem with maybe taking away the mentioning of human rights because they think it's too ambiguous or too broad or complex, and they just wanted to define it as maybe the freedom of expression. And this is something that you're going to meet again and again people who come from very privileged positions who already have rights and take rights for granted they're going to want to have a more limited view of what human rights can mean because they lack the experience of knowing 
with violations of their basic human rights entails. Uh, Keenan Malik, I just want to mention him because he said uh, when they voted through the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the General Assembly in December 1948, he said that this is probably going to be the most important document in UN and the UN history because we have the charter and it mentions human rights eight times it mentioned human rights but it doesn't define human rights but that is something that the declaration does so what I'm doing is I'm lifting a counter-narrative so here you see some of the female delegates who were part of the uh, Commission on the Statutes of Women and even though they didn't have any voting rights they argued very passionately in a different body. Uh, you have Marie Klompe from uh, New Zealand. You have uh, Lakshmi Menon from India here. You have Begum Shaysikramula from Pakistan. You have Bernardino, uh, Minerva Bernardino from Dominican Republic. And you have Marie Helene Lefourchot from France. And she actually, uh, she got the, the uh, prize for her involvement in the, in, in the Second World War. And Minerva Bernardino, she has actually been talked about by uh, the Dag Hammarskjöld, General Sec the Secretary General, as very influential in the convention that preceded the CEDAB you know, the conventional elimination of discrimination against women? So uh, she was chair of the commission on the status of women and part of, of drafting that convention that preceded CEDAW. And Begum uh, Shaysteikramula, she was part of the first uh, assembly in Pakistan and uh, writing feminist Shairala on pers uh, personal law for women to inherit property and to own property. So this is the Commission on the Statutes of Women. It was initially just a sub-commission, but it was upgraded to a full commission. And um, Eleanor Roosevelt was initially against this because she thought that a commission on human rights would cover issues of women's rights. But Minerva Benadino, you see in the middle, she said, no, we, uh, we have seen in history that a commission uh, with a majority of men will not cover women's rights. So we need a full commission on women. So these are the different bodies, human bodies that the declaration was debated through. The, human right, the Commission on Human Rights, where you had Eleanor Roosevelt and uh, Hansa Mehta, and the Third Committee of the General Assembly, where you had 12 female delegates. And then in the final uh, uh, discussion, you had four female delegates giving really long speeches. Uh, there were also a, a women's lobby during the drafting. Just wanted to, uh, to mention that. So there were also like NGOs that were lobbying throughout the process. I just want to mention though that the ones who got consultative status in the UN were Western and the All Indian Women Conference did not receive consultative status. So for example, the one of the, the one of the NGOs that uh, Gildersleeve founded uh, for academic women, uh, American Federation of uh, International Federation for Academic Women, they were against the Equal Rights Amendment but they got consultative status in the UN to talk about women's rights. Uh, this is Minerva Bernardino, um, uh, but she was influential throughout. Here is Hansa Mehta, Begum Shisikramulla, and this is Bodil Getrev in the middle. She was chair of the Commission on the Statutes of Women and also vice chair of the third committee. So, um, these are just some of the things that they pushed for, to not mention man or men as, inclu as inclusive, but actually talk about human rights and everyone. And to always have an extensive non-discrimination list and focus on sex there. 
and then equal rights in marriage and divorce. Divorce was not mentioned in the earlier drafts uh, before the Commission on the Statutes of Women talked about that. And also ha to, e to have equal pay for equal work for men and women. So these are just one, uh, some of the crucial wordings. But there were some things that they didn't, uh, didn't manage to defend, and that was to always have an explicit mention of men, like everyone, men and women throughout the declaration. And, and also to have his or hers mentioned. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap up because uh, I don't have more time. Um, but this gives you another view of this dominant story that you probably all heard of human rights and the, and the first declaration in the UN as a Western male white document, which is not really accurate. It's not the whole story. It's part of the story, and this is another part. So it's a counter-narrative. So thank you. Hi. My name is Rosemary Park, and I am from a small non-governmental organization in the United States called the Advocates for Human Rights. And I'm standing in for Dr. Rosa Friedman, who was unable to be here at the last minute. So we've heard a wonderful description of the historical um, role that women played in the founding of the UN and these key instruments. And I think that also leads us, that leads us now to the question of where is the UN today? Because we know that critical and crucial role and the impact that women had in playing in terms of promoting and lifting up gender equality and ensuring that women were spoken for at the UN. So that leads me to talk about the UN Gender Network, which is an initiative spearheaded by Durham University and the University of Reading. And it started back last year in January 2017. And what it is, is an initiative to bring together a range of actors from around the world together to look at gender equality within the UN. These are academics, civil society organizations, member states, as well as staff from the UN. And we are coming together to talk about and scrutinize gender equality policies and practices across all of the bodies of the UN. Now the overall goal is to understand the causes and the impacts of gender equality and how it plays out across these different bodies. Because after all, we all know that if the UN is going to lead on upholding human rights values, women's human rights, as well as the sustainable development goals, it's important that it leads by example. So why is there a need actually? Let me illustrate a couple of the challenges just briefly to give you some highlights of this. In 2016, the UN acknowledged that 83% of its own UN entities had not achieved their own gender targets. There's actually no universal policy on gender equality across the UN. It's not like you can go to the UN, download the human rights briefing book or the human resources briefing book and find all the gender equality policies in one place. That does not exist. And so each of the different UN bodies have disparate and di dis different gender equality policies. And when you look more closely, only 33% of those bodies have a gender unit to help gender mainstreaming <coughs> and gender equality issues. I myself, when I first participated in the very first workshop, was really surprised to learn that only 89% of UN bodies actually have a specific policy on sexual harassment, abuse, and exploitation. That number actually drops when we're talking about policies on discrimination, and only 70% of those bodies actually have a written policy on discrimination. So going back to the UN Gender Network, there are four specific aims that it seeks to achieve. First of all, it seeks to establish an international network from that broad range of sectors I described who are coming from different disciplines and bringing different kinds of expertise. Second of all, the UN Gender Network strives to harness that expertise and experience that everybody is bringing so that we can all better understand the reasons behind gender inequalities in the UN and the consequences that that has on UN leadership when it comes to the Sustainable Development Goals. Third, the Gender Network wants to use the network's activities as a platform to launch recommendations to the UN and to member states for reforms and to help underpin the implementation of sustainable development goals. And I think this is a really critical component because it's not just about getting together and talking, it's about action, advocacy, and striving for change. 
And fourth and finally, the UN Gender Network seeks to ensure that the network has sustainability and that there will be room and momentum for continued collaboration on these issues. So since its launch in 2017, there have been three primary questions that the UN Gender Network has sought to answer. First of all, what are the current obstacles to gender equality at the UN? Second, why does gender inequality still remain a problem? And third, what impact does this situation have on development policy, especially when it comes to the sustainable development goals, one of which gender goal number five is about gender equality, as we know. So the discussions in this close examination has been taking place via workshops, in-person workshops. And so we've already held two of them, um, both at the University of Reading and here in London at the Foreign Commonwealth Office. The third one will be taking place at Durham University. I'm looking over to Eva since she'll be hosting that next week. And it's a chance to really bring together the network to discuss these issues in person. So as part of this, though, we've been continuing our activity to research and to really drill down and understand the issue and the problems better. So we undertook a UN mapping project. Like I mentioned, you can't go and find that one single human resources manual, unfortunately, at the UN. But we can try and drill down into each of the individual bodies and find out what are the policies that you have and how are those working and do you even have policies in place? So this summer, we all worked together to line up law firms as well as interns who contributed pro bono time to help us map out the gender equality policies across all of the UN bodies. And this was really, uh, like I mentioned, a drilled down approach, looking everything from do you have a policy? What's your recruitment and hiring look like? Um, what kind of advancement programs do you have in place for women? Uh, are there facilitative policies for people who are parents, breastfeeding and childcare facilities, and so on? And what does your separation policy look like when someone actually leaves? And so we looked at each of these, and um, all of these will be used, the findings will be used to feed into recommendations so that we can take this ground up data from each of the different bodies to help support the network's work. So I do want to conclude by making a very quick announcement because if you would like to learn more, there is going to be a program tonight at the London School of Economics at the Women, Peace, and Security Department at 6.30, from 6.30 to 8 p.m. And it's entitled Gender Equality, How Can the UN Lead? So I do encourage you all to attend. And thank you so much. Appreciate it. And Fatima is up. Well, let's get you on the big screen. Can you hear me well? Yes, we can't see you. You're, you're a bit blurred, but we can hear you loud and clear. So yes, I was saying, uh, we speak about the so four parts, the why is it so important, uh, what we have achieved, how we have achieved it, and maybe some recommendation for future advocacy work uh, if some of you are involved in advocating for, advocating for any, uh, any issue, and I'd be using um, our research as an example. Uh, so why is it important to, to have knowledge of women? First of all, uh, as it is have been saying, it's just giving credit to a credit due. I can tell you as a personal um, personal experience, I'm from Algeria. I've, uh, I've always been, I grew up with the idea that feminism is just a Western concept and that basically um, non-Western countries are not, uh, you know, feminism doesn't come from, from other parts of the world, but actually uh, it is thanks to non-Western countries that we got gender equality in the UN Charter. So this definition of my life, and it um, it also it created role models. And it's not enough to create role models like it, it's not enough just to identify women uh, as role models, but um, identify women for uh, girls and uh, other women coming from. Non-Western countries, so that we can understand that what those women have been achieving in 1945 was tremendous, and um, with all the uh, with all the challenges that it met, they managed to get gender equality in the charter, and that was even more impressive, knowing that Western women were actually opposed to it. Um, so that also helps those countries to just understand. Um, for example, Brazil, uh, to understand that they have ownership in this uh, in feminism, and it also shapes how diplomacy um, is uh, is conducted today. And uh, as it is a saying, uh, history is highly political, 
and it makes so much sense, even though it's in the past, but it makes so much sense today. Uh, so what, what we have done on this research is basically, so uh, we started doing uh, some research about those women and we couldn't find anything. Uh, very, very few documents on the internet, very few books talking about it. Um, we, we found an article on, uh, of Tobias Kapp, uh, a Norwegian uh, diplomat who was also working for the UN in 2008, uh, which was mentioning uh, the, the, the women. The thing is that uh, her work had no impact at all. Like we, it, it, was, it was an amazing research. She's the first one to have talked about those women, um, but her work had yeah, absolutely no impact. So I tried to understand how how do we get some issues on the table? And why are some ideas ignored? Why other ones emerge? Um, so I took an example of uh, the Scott article in 2008 and our research after and trying to understand how um, how we got what we got, knowing that Tobias Scott was a very, uh, she's a good friend and we talked about it. And even her, she can't really understand how come with all her credibility, with her popularity, um, didn't manage to have uh, to impact the system, to impact the media. Um, and it's true that scholars can't really, it's very, very hard to have one um, advocacy theory explaining, oh, this is why this research is succeeding, this is why this one, uh, it's really, really hard to find uh, one single uh, rule for to apply to all research. So it's very, it's, uh, you have to apply to each, each research and each advocacy work um, is specific. Um, so, so yeah, so you have two outcomes. When you come, you, when you come with an issue, you have two outcomes. So either you have uh, it gains greater influence on a certain policy, uh, or it becomes less effective in achieving the outcome. And my findings were that uh, through perseverance, time, credibility, and the multiplicity of interactions, advocacy can succeed even without much, if any, experience. Uh, of academic knowledge or academic knowledge of uh, advocacy theory. Um, our first problem was that, um, so what I found is that it's very useful to come out with a specific problem. Um, so our problem was that it was quite simple, is that the UN Women website was wrong. Um, so I believe they were explaining um, the, 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 the four women uh, even they were the one who were opposed to gender equality were acknowledged to getting gender equality in the UN Charter. Um, so, um, so, so what we did, we first tried to have uh, to get attention and to get our issue on the agenda. Um, so uh, how how to do that? We we actually so we found the problem, uh, the one that I just told you, and then we tried to identify a source. The, the the problem that we had is like a lot of scholars will tell you that. It's quite simple, you know, you have the problem, you say who's responsible of that problem, and then um, you, you fix the problem. The thing is that our, the source of our problem was basically uh, the United Nations and the women in particular um, were also the ones who could fix the problem. Uh, so and they were also the ones with whom we should partner to get the history right. Um, so what we did, like we we used uh, the a technique that is basically uh, using pre-existing moral standards. So um, so it's basically saying how uh, ideas coming from the from the from the south are ignored. Uh, how we should give credit where credit is due, and how important it is to to use role models. Those are ideas that just echo with people, and so you should that we tell you this, and then. You, this rings a bell for you. It's not. It's not like an idea. So the, the, the idea was just like taking some pre-existing moral standards and just um, adapting them to our to our problem. Um, so that really helped us get attention. And uh, it also showed that you don't you don't really need to have um, to be popular uh, to get credibility. But that also what helped us it was uh, also to have. We, we, we build a network, and that's also, uh, this is also what we're trying to do also with the UN Gender Network, it's basically through, uh, through all those relationships and uh, by coming all together and by sharing each of our network that we managed to get uh, this issue on the agenda. 
even though when I start looking into to explain um, why some issues are on the agenda and other not, um, I, a lot of scholars were saying that we should actually give um, a, a causal effect to the problem. So uh, to, to try to say that, for example, the forgotten history uh, was caused by people who didn't really understand the harm behind their actions. So you know the people who who wrote who, who wrote that um, four women fought for gender equality didn't really want to to dismiss or to to, to just hide um, uh, consciously uh, the, the the role of uh, of the southern women, but the harm that they, they have done uh, is here and 70 years ago after we're still trying to fix that. Um, so um, uh, one of the explanations, because a lot of people have been asking us how come uh, this history has been forgotten, and uh, it's not only it's not only the UN who has been telling this history wrong, it's not only uh, academic and scholars who have been writing this history in the wrong way, it's also uh, the, the non-Western countries uh, themselves uh, where um, uh, are also responsible for their own uh, history by. Uh, for example, uh, we had a press conference in New York last year to present our research with Elise, and um, uh, Ambassador Department's representative to present the United Nations in New York uh, was part of the panel, and he, he explained that actually even in Brazil, uh, Bolsonaro's role as a feminist is extremely enormous. Uh, so that's also something that uh, non-Western countries have this responsibility to just disseminate the, their own story in the, in, in the right way. Um, and that, I mean, we shouldn't have to, 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 to fix this history if it was already something known uh, in, in Brazil, for example. So finally, this general tendency to ignore ideas coming outside of the West uh, is, 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 is not only because of the West itself, but also because, uh, because of non-Western countries. Um, and this is why uh, this research and also everything that is being done by Rebecca and the UN General Network is so important today because it, it benefits the, uh, all countries basically and the, and the UN more importantly. Um, and uh, finally, I would, um, I would maybe speak very quickly about like, how important it is to create this transnational network um, because through, through that network we, might, we met what uh, we call amplifiers, so basically there are people who by joining the cause, uh, they open a whole window of opportunity by sharing their own network. Um, so those people are, can be sympathetic journalists, um, uh, they can be researchers, they can be uh, advocates to a lot of uh, UN people. Um, and what happened is that we met some high delegates who just decided to maybe sometimes trust us and just open their own network and uh, introduce us to, 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 to the network and then those people were responded because they had this quality kind of that uh, someone else was backing up this research. So uh, that was super helpful. Um, and uh, finally, um, the, this process of getting the history right is a very difficult process in a way that it involves deconstructing um, the knowledge that has been told uh, until here. So it's not like exactly bringing a new idea. It's just deconstructing something that has been disseminated and replaced by the right teachers. The last part, I'm interested very, very quickly to make a presentation for the one who wants to do advocacy and, uh, and, and policy and why if you have projects you want to, yeah, to, to, to push forward. Um, I would say like develop a deep knowledge on the subject. In our case, we spent more than a year and a half, I would say, to to research on this uh, on this topic, and um, uh, and then we had to develop a network of relationships, as I said, uh, that could help you and uh, kind of uh, put their their stamp on your research and just um, it's like a label, like a quality label, saying okay, you can trust those people. Go ahead and yeah, help them with your research. Um, we have to spend the, the, the campaign for a long period of time. You know, acquiring knowledge, building network, gaining credibility, we all required a lot of time. Um, 
of course, you should also definitely set such timing and advantage of opportunities because they are just right time and bad timing to just bring um, the issue on the table. Um, and then the, a, a bunch of researchers have shown that it takes a, a decade to attain um, uh, the knowledge and performance, so uh, a lot, a lot of patients. And finally, um, at the conclusion, I would say that it was very interesting to see how um, our relationship with the media have evolved in a way that at first we were the ones, um, because, well, I think Elise uh, has mentioned that, but now we're having a documentary being produced uh, by HBO uh, about this research. And um, so we're flying actually with the in 10 days. And um, so uh, what happened is that the, the people that we were trying to reach at the beginning, you know what I mean, we started out of nothing, just like a memoir from the LSE library. Um, and so the, our dream <laughs> a year and a half ago was exactly having the documentary. I mean, we, we, we never expect um, a whole documentary to be done, and we were just wishing for to have like two minutes quick video that would have been already wonderful. Um, and what happened is that uh, those the media people and uh, the people that we were trying to reach from the beginning are now the ones that are encouraging us. And it's a very interesting relationship between uh, academia and non-academia in a way that uh, academia tries to reach uh, outside the academia, and at some point, it's those people, the media in particular, who will be the one pushing you um, to, to, to produce, to, to do, to keep doing your work. Uh, so yeah, so that was the, the, that was the conclusion of, your, of my research, and yeah, I hope it was helpful, and please feel free, and I'm not there, so um, Elise can share uh, my contact with you if ever you have any questions, or yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, Eva, you can just round us off. Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you very much for coming along, and thank you to Silas, thank you to Elise and Dan for um, organising today. Um, it's lovely. I'm going to stick a sign with a read bit, but so, um, but thank you very much. It's lovely to be, to be in, um, to be in, to back in Silas, my master's supervisor, who's in the law school in Silas. It's lovely to be back. Um, so I'm going to talk about the charter and I'm going to talk about the good use that the very hard work of Bertha Lutz and the, those other women at, uh, um, back in 1945, what we can put their work to, to do now. Um, this is a good and very lawyery way. What can, the, what can the law do to help? And I would say I'm, I'm a lawyer, but I don't believe the law can fix everything or solve anything it hasn't done up to now. For instance, actually, that was really interesting about how men would cover everything. There were several cases in the UK arguing that men meant men and women, and repeatedly the court said no. When we wrote the statutes about voting, men meant men. It didn't mean men and women. Repeatedly the law has said that. When people were trying to become solicitors and barristers, said no, no. When we said men, we meant men. We didn't mean women. So this idea that men would all of a sudden cover both, it's just from a lawyer's perspective, it's wrong. Um, <laughs> So I'm going to tell you what, what great use can we put, put their work to. Um, so it's looking for a gender mandate and find, looking for a legal gender mandate. And we kind of start from the basis that the UN Charter clearly envisages a role for women. And that's what, that was what was fought for. And it was a feminist idea of a role for women. It was, it, it was a feminist agenda and that's what the aim was. Um, the preamble, Article 1.3, Article 8, directly addressed the role of women. Um, whereas the, and we would argue that the geographic requirements that are contained in Article 101, which says the Secretariat should have geographical representation, could be further interpreted to mean gender parity. Now, since 1986, the UN has repeatedly acknowledged it has a gender problem. It has repeatedly missed every single target it has set. It was going to be 95, then it was going to be 97, then it was going to be 2000, then it was going to be 2015. Now it's 2030. They never meet any of it. An argument is if you interpreted the charter to require you to have a legal mandate, it might help a little bit. So I'm going to look at, I'm not really going to talk about the history of the drafting of the charter because that's really been covered already, but the object and purpose of the charter, how you would do a feminist treaty interpretation, and also the need for intersectionality in understanding and interpreting it. Um, an example of the problem, I think, is, is in fact the election of, the, of um, Mr. Guterres last year. So 
In the 2016 election, there was a lot of you know, heraldry around the fact that there were a lot of women on the shortlist. But everyone said, oh, it's all okay, even though it was a man, so the best person got the job. Now, that is ridiculous on a number of levels. First off, because while there aren't actually a list of job requirements, there isn't a list there, so how you would judge anyone's the best person for a job where there is no job description. Uh, second is there is already affirmative action. The geography and the way the geography is interpreted means it goes every region, and the region, how then the way they divide it up is, is slightly comical in itself, but each region gets to be Secretary General. So there is already an acceptance that we do require affirmative action in order for the UN to be representative, which meant that we were only looking really for Europeans or maybe an Australian or uh, somebody from New Zealand if they went a bit wild. So that was, we were already narrowing it down. And then on the third basis, of course, was that if we accept that Mr. Guterres was the best person from the job from his region, it meant there were no other suitably, suitably qualified women in Europe or Australia or New Zealand. And of course, that is not true. Now, this isn't a personal attack about Mr. Guterres, who, you know, looks like he's a perfectly decent human being. I don't, you know. But this idea that he was the best person for the job is a ridiculous idea or assumption. Not that he's the worst person for the job, but this sort of thing, oh, there were women on the shortlist, haven't we improved? No, actually, no. Um, so it has this gender problem. And we're going to, our job is to find the, the gender mandate. Now, um, some excellent work have already demonstrated about the charter itself and the amazing work done by the women to conclude it. Um, I'm going to slightly jump back a little bit to, to 1919, where a similar hard, diligent work by women made sure that women were in the covenant of the League of Nations and in the constitution of the International Labour Organization. Um, they were... Uh, the first proper global NGOs were mainly set up by women. Um, they're extremely proactive in the creation of the uh, Permanent Court of Arbitration. Obviously, I'm going to focus on the law, but the International League for Peace and Freedom, there were numerous, and within trade unionism as well. Um, these women sent a delegation. Some of these organizations got together, sent a delegation to Paris. They couldn't, um, some of the women couldn't go because they were German. Now, they were mainly middle-class women. I think this is another point just on intersectionality, of course. It's not only representation globally, but also the class, you know, the elites who, who, gets, to, who gets to go to these course things. And these were generally, we're talking about mainly middle-class women here, um, except in the trade union movement where it was much more diverse, actually, within the trade union from a class perspective. Um, and they, they found it very hard to get in to talk to anybody. They eventually did. They had a meeting with Woodrow Wilson. He brought it back, it got dismissed, but after a lot of lobbying, they got Article 7 of the Covenant. And the art Article 7 of the Covenant said that it, the Secretariat would be open to equally to both men and women. And what's particularly troubling, I think, is when you get to the Charter, is they decide to take out something that was in the Covenant. Oh, we don't need that anymore. The idea they didn't need it anymore is, is ridiculous if you look at the amount of women who actually got into the League. Now, there were very important women, um, Rachel Crowdy, for instance, who had quite significant roles in, in the League of Nations. But though, again, you had groups of women, groups of feminist women, active, making sure women were there in the League, that same activity had to be repeated again for the UN Charter. And I would argue that same activity is now required again now. Yeah, it gets a bit boring to have to say the same thing and jump up and down and bit, yeah, you become that annoying person. You're going to bring up women again. But, you know, if you have to, you have to. Um, so looking at how do you do... How are we going to interpret these bits? So, this is the bits of the charter um, that, or the legal document. Um, how would I go about interpreting it? So, these are the articles that, that I'm talking about the preamble, basic fundamental human rights and equal rights of men and women, Article 1.3, uh, which is the article that is about the organization. Um, most of the articles are kind of outward facing, but Article 1 is inward facing. Um, about respect for human rights, fundamental freedoms for all without distinction of sex, as we mentioned, and Article 8, no restriction of the el eligibility of men and women to participate in any capacity and under any conditions of uh, under conditions of equality. So not just that women get to be there, but they're supposed to be there and participate equally. So you're not only present, it's not just tick boxing, you're supposed to be there, women are supposed to be there and active. Now, there isn't very much on feminist treaty interpretation. I mean, from a legal perspective, obviously. Um, th this, is, this hasn't been a great um, 
because I haven't done a lot of research on that quite yet. Um, but you can use legal feminist interpretative methods from other areas. Now, when you come to treaty interpretation, very often there's a sort of a, um, international law more generally does this, but it's in seeming neutrality. Okay, so you, you interpret the treaty on its own terms, and there is, you know, it's a, you do it in a neutral way, but of course, no, there's no such thing as neutrality. Neutrality is often full of stereotypes. It's always full of assumptions. And feminist interpretation of statutes, of cases, of constitutions, have shown methods of ways of asking questions to try to get past that seeming neutrality. So you read the text as if it ought to apply to both men and women. You make interpretive choices to eliminate subordination. So if you have a choice and one would lead to subordination, you pick the one that won't. Or you consider intersect intersectional issues that arise from the article, so you don't think about it in a, again, this has been brought up, with a white Western conception of what helps me. It might help me, but it mightn't help somebody else from somewhere else in the world. Ask a woman question. Would, would a particular interpretation unduly disproportionate burden women or discriminate against women? So if you've got a list of criteria for a job, if that if the criteria for the job are going to discriminate, it might look neutral, but if you start looking at the text, will it automatically have a discriminatory effect on women? And we find in the Secretariat that that happens pretty much all the time. Now, I would argue that none of those four things would be in compatible with Article 31 of the Vienna Convention of the Law of Treaties, which is kind of like the meta-treaty that you use to interpret all the other treaties. Um, there's the... The, its main, the Vienna Convention's main um, focus is that you must interpret a treaty along, you know, you read the text in its um, plain meaning, but also along with its object and purpose. The object and purpose of the UN Charter is there in the preamble and there in Article 1, both of which make it quite clear about women and non-discrimination based on sex, amongst other things. So I'd say oh, there's, yes, good faith, I would argue this is another important part of treaty interpretation. Well, good faith requires you to uphold those four feminist techniques because that would be a good faith interpretation of what those feminist women intended when they put that in. That's what their intention was. That is a good faith interpretation of what Bertha Lutz intended the charter to actually to mean. So I, I would argue um, that, that that fits in quite, quite okay there, that there isn't necessarily a problem. The big problem that is always put forward, um, and you read this in you know, all the General Assembly resolutions that say we will get, have gender equality by you know, 1997 and 2000 and all the other years that have come and gone, is that but we will, of course, geographical representation is paramount. And this comes from Article 101 of the UN Charter, which references geography. Now, Article 101 does not mention gender, and it says so you will the Secretariat will be hired on the basis of efficiency, competency, and integrity with geographic representation as a paramount consideration. And of course, that is, that is not, not important. The problem is that Treatly interpreted as per, um, Treatly? Treatly. Treatly. <laughs> um, as the first Secretary General, interpreted geography to mean lines on maps. Okay, so borders, that's all geography means. You ask a geographer what geography means, they're not going to tell you it means lines on maps. I mean, I joke with geographers a lot that all they do is colour things in. But they assure me, they do more than colouring it. Um, but it was interpreted as just meaning countries. It wasn't interpreted as meaning anything else. So I did go and ask a few geographers, well, what's the definition of geography? Now, it's like asking a lawyer for a definition of law. I kind of go, um, but... <laughs> From very, very kind geographers, uh, did send me on one and actually sent me an Irishman's definition, which of course I was delighted with, a guy called uh, Garod O'Toole. And he said that geography is about power. Although often assumed to be innocent, the geography of the world is not a product of nature, but a product of histories of struggle between competing authorities over the power to organise, occupy, and administer, administer um, space. That is what geography is. And I would argue that if we, in, if we reinterpret geography in the charter, to mean that, to mean more than just lines and maps, to talk about power and space, and to consider what is the space that women occupy. We obviously occupy 50% of the space anyway, 
And that if geographic representation means representing all the power, and if we thought of power as more than masculine ideas of strength and violence, then we said, well, power would mean geographic representation would require 50% of the world's geography to be included, which would include women. That it can't just mean lines on maps and 50% of the population, and just population, not class, not culture. I mean, from legal culture, I mean, there's the stuff in the, you know, the ICJ statute about legal cultures, and there aren't legal cultures represented in the International Court of Justice, just the Commonwealth and the civil law systems. Any, any pretense to anything else is laughable. But I, I would argue that's replicated by geographic representation because it does not take account of elites, it does not take account of gender, it does not take account of educational background. And that coupled with, and I, I don't have time to talk about how the UN interprets things like competence, ideas of competence which have come through, you can see what's valued and what's not valued. So argument ultimately is, we need to look at the charter. There is a feminist, I would argue, legal mandate in the charter for gender equality. And that the thing that the UN always uses to say it can't work really hard on gender is geographic representation. And I think if we take geography and believe the geographers, and that it's more than life and map, that isn't a hurdle. That's something that can help us not only get gender balance, but also get an intersectional idea of what gender balance ought to mean in the practice.